I'm Shelby Wynn Pigler, and this is my husband, Ben. And um, I've been here about 15, 20 years, and Ben's been tagging along with me for about 10. So um, we're going to go ahead and read our passage for today. It's Acts 1, 3 through um, 8. Uh, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Ben is going to pray for us. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for uh, allowing us to be here today, God. And I, Lord, I thank you that it is finished, God, that... Um, you have given us the blood and the Son, and Lord, that you have given us the Spirit, God. And I, Lord, today I just want to pray for the Garricks, God, um, that you would just uh, show them, Lord, that in this in this darkness, God, that you would uh, that you were it. There is none beside you. That you were it, and um, Lord, as they as they look, Lord, they. They have nowhere to look but to you, God. And I pray for Justin, Lord, as he uh, he ministers to them, God, that you would just be, uh, let him be your your hands and feet, God, and, and show your mercy and your love through him. And Lord, as Luke brings a message that you would, uh, Lord, that you would just let us hear you, God, and that you would let us uh, not hear Luke, but your words, Lord, and, and um, let us take what Luke says and, and from your word, God, and just be, be your hands and feet throughout the Jerusalem and Judea and Lord to the ends of the earth. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Ben and Shelby, for reading the text and praying for us this morning. Let's look at Acts. We're in uh, week three of Acts, and uh, you see behind us um, our graphic, and I want to walk through this and just kind of, where Justin ended last week, the three really great truths of Acts, when you sum Acts up, it really is all about the fact that Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and the church was sent out. And so I want you to notice, and, and when we were drawing this up and thinking through how to present this, these three eras are the three really great realities of where we are now as the church of Jesus. The foundation is that after Jesus lived and died, he was raised from the dead, and we'll see in our passage this morning, for 40 days he spoke with his disciples concerning things of God. We'll see next week specifically about the event of the ascension, that Jesus first went up. And because he went up, everything else follows in the book of Acts because we don't worship this morning a dead founder of a religion where we can go to a tomb or we can go to a monument and we can pay homage. Right now when we speak, Jesus hears us because he's alive. Because he's alive and not just because he's a regional deity or something that someone in some part of the earth claims him as their own, like you have in so many places, Christianity believes in an ascended Christ that is above heaven and earth, his presence inhabits the earth, and the universe, and the Bible says right now 
that there is not one place in this entire universe that Christ himself is not reigning over. So on days like this, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are walking in a place where Jesus has already conquered and where Jesus is already ruling over as Lord. That helps today, doesn't it? So he went up. And we're going to see the promise today of this second big event. And when we get into chapter 2, we'll see the event at Pentecost where the Spirit comes down. He's poured out on the disciples, not just the disciples or the apostles, but normal everyday people like you and me, the Spirit is poured out on them. And because of that, the church is sent out. And what we find is the first event happened, and it'll never happen again. He ascended once. The second event, in the historic sense, Pentecost is not repeatable. We as individual believers get in on that event that happened once and for all. But this outward, this third arrow is what we're living this morning, is that the book of Acts kept going. Justin talked to to us last week about how Acts almost ends abruptly, and it's because that the story is continuing even now. And notice how there's a box around these three areas. I just want to put this in your mind this morning. You can't separate any of these from each other. You can't isolate the ascension because it's because of the ascension that the Spirit came down and the church went out. You can't isolate the Spirit coming down because the Spirit came down so that the church might go out. And we must not ever forget our responsibility to be his people going out because Jesus sits on the throne and the Spirit has come. That's how we want you to think through Acts. So just read to us this morning is we are moving out of introduction really into the beginnings of this book. Some call it the Acts of the Apostles. We talked through it, Justin talked through it in the introduction. Might be better to think of it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles because the Holy Spirit is the main character using people like us to accomplish God's purposes. In in our living room at our house, um, my wife did this really cool I could have never dreamed it up because I'm an ex-football player, but just how she kind of put stuff on a wall, hung it, and did all that, it looks really good. And kind of in the middle of that is a really special picture um, to me personally. It describes what happened today and tomorrow, 28 years ago. The U.S. military was conducting something called Operation Gothic Serpent. It was in Somalia over the course of about two months from August to October of 1993. Right in the middle of that, An operation was sent out to nab two top lieutenants of a Somali warlord. It all went down on October 3rd and October 4th. The the raid was only supposed to take about an hour. And when stuff hit the fan, it was stretched out into even the next day. You know it as Black Hawk Down. And hanging in our living room, you say, why do you have a picture of that in your living room? Because one of the guys who's in that photo and who was a crucial part of that battle is a real close friend of mine. His name's Jeff Struker. He retired a major. He's in the Army Ranger Hall of Fame. He was uh, an active ranger for about 11 years, and then he was a chaplain of the Rangers for another 11 years. And he's pictured, he was on the last Humvee off the streets of Mogadishu rescuing the, uh, the, the patrol and the guys that were embedded through the night. And Jeff's day was pretty wild because as soon as the raid happened, the Rangers were dropping out of the helicopter. Delta Force was hitting the building. And one of the Rangers fell. He missed the rope and he fell 70 to 80 feet. His name was Todd Blackburn. And so in the first little, literal seconds of this operation, 
We have a, a ranger that's critically wounded, and so they have to take him back to base. So Jeff is put in charge of a three-hummer convoy, and they put Blackburn in the convoy, and then Jeff leads them out, and as soon as they get headed back to base, the, the buildings all around them erupt with militia fire, insurgent fire, and in Jeff's Humvee manning the 50 cal gun was a 21-year-old sergeant named Dominique Pilla. And as they went through the streets, Pilla was shot in the head and suffered a mortal wound and fell down in the Humvee and passed away instantly. So the first casualty of the battle is in Jeff's Humvee. And they make it back to base, and then they're told that a Black Hawk has been shot down and they need to go back into the city and look for the pilot and try to rescue it. If you've studied that battle, this is called the chef's convoy. They just grabbed everybody at base, including even the guys that were cooks. If you can fire a rifle, we're going to stick you in Humvees and try to go get them. And as Jeff sent his men to get more gas and fuel, he was there cleaning up the Humvee in the aftermath of one of his men dying. And what went through his mind at that moment was, Lord, he was a believer at this time. He said, Lord, if I go back into those city, in, in that city, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to die. It, it's it's going to happen. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm looking at my, my own death here. And he said, in my heart, the Spirit of God took me back to the prayer in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. And at that moment, he said, such a peace overcame his heart. And such a rose up in him this ability to face what he thought was going to be certain death and to risk his life going back into a city in order to rescue a downed pilot. He grabbed his men in his gear. They got back in the Humvee. Within 10 seconds of being back on, in the city, they were being sh shot at. Jeff said a RPG literally hit the top of their Humvee and didn't explode and went to the side of a building and exploded. And for the next 18 hours, Sergeant Jeff Struker was on the comms communicating with people. And then they went in, in and out of the city three times in order to rescue these men that were pinned behind enemy lines. What was amazing was all throughout that, people began to notice in the radio chatter how calm, how reassured, and how in control he was at that moment as he was taking orders and giving orders. When I get to the book of Acts, I see God's people engaged. I see God's people engaged, not in a room where it's 70 degrees and everything's nice and everything's normal. Christianity was born, one man said it this way, Christianity was born in the middle of the greatest military force that the world had ever seen. What? The Roman Empire. It was born in the midst of the greatest philosophical system that ever was in existence, the Greeks. And it was born right in the heart of the most religious city on earth, the Jews. Jerusalem. And their founder, their Lord, their rabbi, their master had just been put to death by these people a week or so ago. And yet we find the book of Acts, Jesus sending them out, commanding them to go into a world where they are the small minority and to turn it upside down. And as you see through the book of Acts, what happens? You see that happening. Title of the message this morning is Certainty dependence, and power. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. We move from the introduction and we're looking at how they ended up like they were and what does that mean to us. I want you to see first this morning in our text that Jesus gave his disciples absolute certainty 
by proof of his resurrection. I was thinking about my buddy going through that city. As he went back out the second time, believing he was going to face certain death, he was certain about a few things. He had resolve to face enemy fire. Ultimately, his trust was in the Lord. Secondly, his trust was in the guns of the U.S. military. Third, he just was following orders. And Christ begins here, before anything happens, showing his disciples of the certainty that he is who he is. Look in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The word proofs there in the Greek is a little different from what a word would be as, as a sign. It's not just a shadow of something, like we see something. or it, The proof is that there is evidence that backs up the claim. That's what's being said here. And the Bible says is that Jesus proved himself because he presented himself alive to his disciples. Now notice it says in verse 3 specifically, after his suffering. <laughs> So he died. <laughs> he really physically died. There's people out there that say that, you know, Jesus suffered so bad on the cross and, you know, then they, he really wasn't dead and they kind of, you know, he was kind of in a coma state or he kind of took a nap and they put him in a cave and, you know, the coolness of the cave like resuscitated him. Y'all, there's a reason that Roman soldier stuck a spear in his side. There's a reason why blood and water came out because he had pierced the heart, <laughs> The sack of fluid around the heart, that's what came out. It was the way of him. I'm not going to break this guy's legs, but I'm going I'm to make sure he's dead. This is the fatal blow that they would give when they executed people by crucifixion. And so here he is now, and he's presenting himself alive because he wants them to have absolute certainty that he's alive. This is the same Jesus, and this is the one that is about to give you commands about what to do. I just want to fly through these real quick, but here's my question. What are these proofs? Because the verse says in, in verse 3 that for 40 days he was speaking about the kingdom of God. He was appearing to them. So don't think of it as like Jesus was with them for 40 days, from the resurrection to the ascension, because we'll, we'll see this, especially next week, from the time he rose again to the time he ascended was, was 40 days. But during that time, Jesus is coming and going. He's appearing, sometimes like just shows up, like we're here. Oh, wow, there's Jesus, like the door's locked. How did he get here? He's coming and he's, he's going. And so over the course of 40 days, they had not one interaction with him, not two. John records three or four. If you put the gospels together, there's a bunch of them. And even Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there was one time that he appeared to 500 people at once. And Paul even says, hey, church of Corinth, if you want to go seek those people out, most of them are still alive. And so Jesus is establishing his mission to show these people that it is based off the fact that he is alive. Let me just fly through these real quick. What are some of these proofs? First, they, they saw him, okay? Now, th th obviously, yes. But you got to realize, Jesus said in a, in a couple of these verses, and, and if you don't get all these verses, they're on the guide on, on the website for, for small group. But specifically in the Matthew 28 passage here, in the Mark 16 passage, Jesus says twice, tell my brothers to go here to, and I'll meet them, so that... They can see me. One of these verses says they saw him and they grabbed him by the feet. Isn't that amazing? And some historical claims of world religions, there's only a claim, but it's not backed up by sight. And yet Christ for 40 days said, here I am. 
Here I am, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, numerous times, many people, not a select few that could hide behind a curtain and say, yeah, we saw him. Jesus is coming and going, showing himself. They also heard him. Now, this is really interesting. On the day of the resurrection, Mary is at the graveside. She's weeping. She doesn't realize it's Jesus. He walks up. And she's just sorrowful. She's weeping. I don't know where they put his body. She thinks he's the gardener. And then with one word, Jesus says, Mary. She heard her name with that familiar voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And she goes, Rabbi. She clings to him. Don't cling to me. I'm ascended to my father and my God. But go tell my disciples even in one of those passages, it says, go tell Peter specifically, the dude that just punked me out. I haven't abandoned him. I'm here for him. He's going to see me too. And of course, in all these passages, they, they saw him and they, they heard him. This is really important. Third, they touched his scars. They touched him. They touched him. Because when they saw him and they heard him first, they freaked out like, man, this is a ghost. Like, like this is unsolved mysteries right in front of us. Like, this is happening right here. We're seeing a ghost and Jesus says, Hey, come touch me. And they didn't like put their finger there and it go through as it would a spirit. They touched him. And I think it's really amazing that he encouraged them to touch his hands and his feet because he was showing them why he died and rose again. One man said it this way. The only man-made thing in heaven right now is the scars of Jesus' hands and his feet and his glorified body. And for all of eternity, they will scream to us, this is why he came, this is why he lived, this is why he died, and this is why he rose again for our salvation. They touched him. So you could actually touch him. This is important. Fourth, they, they ate with him. In the book of Acts, and we'll, I'm jumping ahead real quick, but in Acts 1-4 it says, while they were staying with him, he ordered them not to do something. The, the Greek is literally to eat with. And so we have here in, in the book of Acts, Jesus eating with them. Do you know Jesus cooked breakfast? That's pretty cool. John chapter 21, Peter's like, I'm going fishing, and they're all out there trying to fish, and it's the same old Peter, and you know every fishing story in the New Testament, Peter's a fisherman, but Jesus has to do a miracle for him to catch fish. You get that, right? And so they come in after this miracle happens and Jesus has fish laid out and he's like, come and have breakfast. Like Jesus cooked them breakfast. He ate with them. In Luke 24, they were, they were freaking out. Oh, what is this? Is this? He's like, give me a piece of food. Like, give it to me. And he, he ate it. So this idea that he just wasn't like off in a corner appearing in like the northwestern corner of a building, like hovering in midair, like he was sitting with them, talking with them, partaking of food with them, fellowshipping with them. They knew that he was alive. The fifth here I just want to mention quickly is they watched him perform miracles. There's a, Peter can't catch fish, so I need to hook him up. Scripture real specific there. Jesus allowed them to catch 153 fish. That's pretty exact, right? Jesus appears to them. He comes and he goes, and so they saw him. So he was different in a lot of ways because of the resurrected glorified body, but he was alive. Now, now why do we start here? Because here is where Acts starts. In order for you to be a Christian, in order for the church to be the church, in order for you to accomplish the mission that Jesus sets before us in the book of Acts, you must be certain about Jesus who is called the Christ. That's where it starts. 
If you miss who Jesus is, and if you miss the fact that he's alive, and if you miss the fact why he dies, guess what? You can't move past that initial starting point. I ask you a question this morning. Is there spiritual certainty in your life? Is there absolute certainty in your life concerning Jesus? Can I ask you this question this morning? Who is Jesus to you this morning? Is he a sticker? Is he a good luck charm? Or as Thomas found out when he saw him, and he touched him, and he saw the wounds, and he saw the scars, and he beheld the Christ, he fell at his feet and he called him Lord and God. Who's Jesus to you this morning? You know why Justin can stand up here and pray for a family that's hurting? And in the midst of that pain, stand here and say, we're going to get through it? And we're going to walk with a family that's hurting? You know why you can stand up here and say that? It's not, it's not preacher talk. Before we walked out here, we were back in, in our office and we were praying for each other. He's praying for me as I preach. I'm praying for him as, as he's about to go conduct a funeral. You know why it's the case? Because cause we, re- like, like, don't look at me as like a, a, a professional minister right now. Like, we really believe Jesus is Jesus. Like, we really do. Like, I can't fake it. And sometimes I have to ask myself that question, you know, traveling the earth, going here, going there. Why am I doing this? Because a, a carpenter got crucified, and then there was a claim that he rose from the dead, and now all of my life is in response to that fact. That's what it means to the church here. That's what it's built upon. So Jesus can't be like some like sidetrack buddy chilling in our passenger seat, kind of cruising through our life, and we're good because Jesus is here. The only posture we truly find ourselves in with Christ is falling at his feet and saying, where else shall I go? You have the words of life. There is no one else I can go to. That's it. Don't allow the ease of the American dream to put you in charge of your life with Jesus as kind of your consensual buddy that kind of pats you on the back and says, yeah, you just go pursue that. Go do that. For them in the New Testament, it was Jesus and no one else. They were absolutely convinced that he was God. Secondly, I want you to see this morning, he not only gave his disciples absolute certainty, but but he ordered his disciples to practice spiritual dependence. So there's absolute certainty, and secondly, there is spiritual dependence. So in verse 3, we have historical facts. Like he's alive, you can touch him, you can see him. And by by the way, isn't it good to notice this morning and to remember this morning that the message of the gospel is not only based off truth revealed from heaven, it's based off actual historical facts that happen here on earth. Like the New Testament is the most, even critical scholarship has to admit that there is no more, there is no other document in ancient literature that is attested as much as the New Testament is. You believe in Plato and Aristotle and there's 10 or 15 documents and some of us had to read, you know, Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey and there's all that. The New Testament has like over 5,000 supported documents because he actually lived. He actually died and he actually rose again. That does my heart good this morning. That my life right now is not based off some pie in the sky dream that somebody dreamed up. It's based off a man that actually came, lived, died, and rose again. But... There's more to it than that, spiritual dependence. If you look in verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the text we read last week in Luke chapter 24, it's just kind of this same idea. And, and let me just state this, and we'll probably state this over the next few weeks. Luke 24 ends... Like, it looks like, like all this is happening on one day, and then when Luke opens Acts, he's like, it's 40 days, and what's going on there? Man, that's just a summation. Luke's getting to the end. This is what it looks like. Acts 1 is more like a, like a, a zoom in and, and seeing the things in real time. But you see the same elements. Remember last week he said, don't depart Jerusalem, but stay in the city until what happens? You get power from on high. And so Christ here is saying the same thing. It's the same conversation, just being told in a a little different way. He says, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait. We know one thing about the disciples, man. Oftentimes they, they, they jumped before they were told, right? They were eager at the bid. They're walking through the Samaritan town. And they wouldn't let them come there. Jesus has his face set towards Jerusalem. He's not going to stop. They get frustrated. James and John like, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Like they couldn't even do that. I don't know why that came in their mind, right? Sons of thunder, chill. Like you're, 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 you're not Thor. Like you can't do that, okay? So just chill. I mean, just how bold they were. They send their mama. What can I do for you? Jesus says, I want my, my sons to sit on your right hand and on your left. I mean, you know, just these guys... Oftentimes were compulsive. They jumped out in front. They jumped the gun. And so notice here in verse three, they have absolute certainty of the fact that he's alive and of the fact they need to go share. And so you feel this like, go, 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 go. When you get to verse four, he's like, stay, 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 stay. Why is that? To bring into their minds this necessity of spiritual dependence. Under this truth, I want you to see first, they must wait for the Spirit in the place that God had planned. Wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. That is, that is Luke's language. It's the same language from uh, in, in John chapter uh, 14, 15, 16, Luke chapter 24. This, this promise of the Father, Luke uses it in chapter 24. It, it's talking about the Spirit being poured out to empower the disciples. And so what you see here is that Jesus is saying, yes, you know I'm alive. Yes, you know that I'm real. Yes, you know who I am. Yes, you're learning about why I really came, but wait. Because you don't need to go out into a world with historical facts and a mind filled with knowledge and convinced who I am that won't work just simply speaking mind to mind and truth to truth. You need spiritual power. Now it's interesting here he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. If you go back and read the Gospel of John, they had already gone to Galilee. Like that's where I can't catch any fish happens. And isn't that true sometimes how we want to do our agenda from our place and we have our ideas, but Christ has a reason you see, what's going on? We've missed, we've missed this in some ways. When Jesus died, I don't know if y'all, y'all know this, but when Jesus died, Matthew 27 says that there were other people that were raised from the dead. Pretty wild. 
Like, I see dead people. Like, there they are. It's, I had a buddy that wrote a dissertation on that passage, and he, the name of his dissertation was, I See Dead People. That's pretty funny. Anyway. And the Bible says that after the resurrection of Jesus, all these dead people came into the city too. And they were testifying of Christ. That, that's nuts. That, that's wild. When Paul's testifying to King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, hey, king, you know all this stuff about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says specifically, this was not done in a corner because all of Jerusalem was seeing these people who had come back to life. They were hearing their testimony. And guess what? Jesus said, I want it to happen in Jerusalem. That's where we're going to start. We're not going to start in Galilee where y'all are from. We're going to move it back to Jerusalem. We're going to bring it back here because in Jerusalem, guess what? You can see where I was crucified. You can go to where I was raised from the dead. It's right here. This is the place to start. Don't, 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 don't. Go somewhere else. Go to where I've asked you to go and wait. So he tells them to wait. He tells them to wait for the Spirit, which I thought was interesting as Shelby was reading it at the end of verse 4. It says, the promise of the Father, you heard from me. You see, Jesus was the one that introduced us to the power of the Spirit. Don't let some hokey on television who misuses who the Holy Spirit is and what he does to rob you from the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you stay up late at night and you're tired of watching Sports Center for the eighth time with Scott Van Pelt, and you turn it over to some quote Christian television, and people jumping around the room, slapping people with green hankies, and you know you go on YouTube and just watch people like jump in the baptistry and throw their jackets and run around like wild banshees, and they do it all in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not that's not the Holy Spirit, because oftentimes in the midst of all that, you never hear Jesus Christ proclaim, you never hear the gospel proclaim, you never hear people call to repentance. All you hear is sow this seed, do this. And, and I'm just like, bro, if, if you're so broke and you need us to sow seeds, maybe you should keep more of those prayer cloths in your closet. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you should hang out a little more. So much done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Everything in this text that talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit was never self-preservation, never self-promotion, never self-seeking. Everything here was the glorification of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel because that's the ultimate work of the Spirit. So you got facts. Now you need power. This idea, this truth, y'all, of spiritual dependence. I tell guys when... We trained pastors overseas and said, reputation is who people think you are. Reality is who God and your wife knows you are. I am a person in spiritual need. I'm a sinner. I was giving Lauren a chance to say amen. Practice of spiritual dependence is one of the greatest things missing in the church today. We know enough, we've read enough books, we've been in enough conferences. Do you know why Justin stands up here just a few minutes ago and was really transparent with us and was, and was crying as he prayed? Because there comes a point in your life when you know that you do not have it within yourself to meet the great spiritual needs of people. But Jesus does. 
And the divine transaction of spiritual power between an empty vessel and an all-sufficient God, God is pleased to work in that way. Wait. Wait. Peter, don't rush out. You'll mess it up again. Wait. Wait where I've called you to wait. Stay there. Why? Because the Spirit would fully identify them with Jesus. Wait, you heard this from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What does that mean? John came, we read in the Gospels, and people, he was preaching repentance, and he was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They would wait out into the water, even Roman soldiers did, tax collectors did, cultural riffraff would do that. John, John never did a sign. John never healed someone. One man said, John didn't raise a dead man, he raised a dead nation. He preached repentance. People would wait out in that water, he would baptize them, and what he was doing was, he was identifying them with repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism wasn't a new Christian thing. Jesus just came along and showed the greater reality of what baptism is. The reason we're ba- we're, we're, we baptize is that we're identifying with Jesus. Just as he died, we're dying. What? To an old life, to sin. Our old man is going away. We're raised to a new life because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. So this baptism language here, Jesus is saying, think about what John did. John baptized with water. And it was identification with repentance and forgiveness of sins. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to baptize you when or with or in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be immersed totally in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be immersed in him. He's going to be immersed in you. And you will now be fully identified with me. This language here, He's not talking about some crazy, ecstatic, wild, out-of-control experience. It's talking about being fully possessed by Christ himself through the Holy Spirit to accomplish what Jesus has called the church to do. That's what it's talking about. You're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, what's, what's interesting is when this was prophesied in all four Gospels, because This prophecy, John the Baptist, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But the second part of that, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That part's left out here because it's not judgment. It's not the day of judgment right now. Guess what? Judgment's later on. And right now the gospel goes out and the gospel is calling men to repent and be forgiven of their sins so that they won't have to face judgment. And in order to carry that message out, guess what? We need the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be identified with the Holy Spirit. Question for you this morning. Does your life, does my life display spiritual dependence upon God and his promises? Does my life, it's a deep question, it's a hard question. Does my life show, as I live, less trust in me and more trust in Christ? Because when you read the Bible and you read about what Jesus is calling us to, it's easy for people to scoff. Oh, that's impossible, or you're crazy, or we can't live that out, or you're not living that out yourself, or this and that. See, the Christian life was, was never meant to be something that you could do on your own. It was something that was be so impossible that only God could do it through you. It's our life. Not perfectly, <laughs> 
Is there a beginning evidence, a continuing evidence? I had a friend who was a missionary, and he was asked to preach at a, a big pastor's conference, and his prayer was that many would um, go to the nations because of his testimony. And leading up to it, he struggled and faced spiritual oppression and even some physical sickness. And the day came to preach, he stood up and he preached and God moved in a great way. And over a hundred people gave their, their lives to full-time Christian service. And looking back on, back on that experience, he was like, Lord, why don't you use me like that all the time? And the voice of the spirit back to him was, you're not weak enough. See, in, in, in the Christian life, it, it's the weakness that brings power. It's the dependence that brings power. And as Americans, sometimes we can read the first part of the Declaration of Independence and forget the last part when the founders banked everything they had, their sacred honor upon the great providence of heaven. In the Christian life, guess what? We don't have a Declaration of Independence. We have a Declaration of Dependence. God, you've called us to the impossible, but guess what? You've given us everything we need through the gospel and the spirit. Let me move on. Third, third truth this morning. So we get down to verse six. Jesus taught his disciples to avoid unnecessary distractions. Unnecessary distractions. So the disciples are seeing him alive in the flesh in verse three. In verse four, they're told to wait, wait for spiritual power, wait for the promise of the spirit, wait to be fully immersed in the spirit so you are fully identified with me. And then guess what? Same old disciples, right? Piping up, asking the wrong questions. And as I read this, I kind of see myself here. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? What they're getting at is they still have in their mind that Jesus is the knight in shining armor who's going to come in and wage a political war against the Romans and overthrow the Romans and kind of that, you know, misconstrue the misconceptions of Christ as he came into the city on Palm Sunday and everybody wanted him to go to Pilate's uh, you know, uh, Pilate's fortress and overturn the Romans. And so the, the, the disciples still have in their, their, their mind this thing that Jesus is, he's a physical king, he's a political king, he's come to do this, he's really come to get us out of our Roman jam. Are you going to do it now? So notice that there's really two things they're hitting at. What they want him to do, what they expect him to do, and the fact that they are overly obsessed with knowing, is it going to happen right now? And Jesus goes, it's not your business. It's not, it's not for you to know that. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Guys, don't get distracted. While you wait on the Spirit, don't cause your mind to go off into a thousand hypothetical rabbit trails and get unfocused on what's important. What was their problem here? Notice that they were distracted about the purpose of mission. They thought that the mission of Jesus was to overthrow the Romans. They thought the mission of Jesus was to restore the kingdom of Israel. This is physical restoration. Kick Pilate out, you'll sit on a throne, you'll be king. I mean, this is really all throughout the Gospels. This is what people are like imposing their thoughts on Jesus. We never do that, do we? Jesus, I think it's a great idea for you to do this. Now, you're, you're God and... You have the mind of God and the heart of God and the omniscience of God and the eternity of God. And I'm just 38 years old, but guess what? I went to school and I read a book. And so I think it would be better if you did this. They misunderstood the purpose of mission, that, that Christ was not coming 
to fix Israel in a physical way. It's kind of this same old mindset today, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus when I say this, but man, it just ain't like what it used to be. Well, guess what? It never will be. Our world's post-Christian. We read the scripture. We find out as he get, before he comes back, it's going to get darker and darker and darker. Guess what? Don't fret. Don't freak out. Because the darker the culture is around you, the gospel can shine all the brighter. I'm not here to restore a physical kingdom. I'm here to preach the gospel of the spiritual kingdom of God. I'm here to restore men and women and children's lives to God. Not just to resurrect something that you can boast about. They were distracted about the purpose of mission, but also notice they were distracted about the priority of mission. They were thinking a physical kingdom, but really what they're asking here is, are you going to do it now? And for them, the priority was, we want to know when you're going to do this. So here's our agenda, and we want to know when you're going to bring it about. Man, I, I've been there. God, this is what I want you to do. How come you had not done it yet? Do it now. Right? So in our mind, we're not only missing on what we want him to do, because we, we haven't asked him, what, but we're like mad that he doesn't do what we want him to do now. And so they were obsessed with, when is this all going to take place? And Jesus says in verse 7, it's not for you to know. (laughs) Isn't that great? We were joking about it in small group Wednesday. There was a book written in 1988. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Somebody in small group who will remain anonymous for the sake of this conversation said, I think I've got that one. Or I think I've read that one. I think that's that's what they said. I've seen that one. There's been all these people down the lines that say, here, now, all that. Check this out. If it happens according to your chart, awesome. But Jesus says, just very gently here, it's not for you to know. And the Greek here is really even more forceful. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In the Greek, it's the middle voice. So it's saying, it's not for you to know the dates and the seasons that the Father himself, of his own accord, of his own sovereignty, of his own authority, has established. Basically, like, don't pry into things that God has shut the door to. What he's trying to tell them to do is your goal is not to figure out when all this goes down. Your goal is to know it's going to go down and to get busy with the mission until it goes down. That's the point. The priority. Do we have Old Testament prophecy? Yes. Should we study it? Yes. Great men of God down the ages have studied all of that and have come to very different opinions on it. And guess what? We give our best shot, but over and over in the the scriptures, over and over in the New Testament, we are told to be ready. And the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is presented such a way in the New Testament that every generation of Christians says, he might come back in my lifetime. But my priority is not to scheme out when it's going to happen. My priority is to do what he's called me to do until it happens. So third question this morning. Does your life, does my life prioritize God's purposes for me? Or do I find myself bringing my purposes to God saying, you do this, you do this. Y'all, we got to flip it. It's his purpose. He defines the purpose. He sets the purpose. He sets the priority. He shows us what we want to do, what we need to do, not what we want him to do, what we need to do. He lays all that out. He does that. He does that. Don't be distracted. Finally this morning, 
Jesus promised his disciples supernatural power for his mission. Very familiar passage, our last verse this morning. But you will receive power. See, see the but right there is bringing them out of being distracted. Don't worry about when it's going to go down. Don't worry about scheming it all up. But I'm redirecting your attention. Will this happen? Yes. But the Father has locked that into his own heart and will. I mean, Jesus, even in his humanity, was like, as a man saying, the Son doesn't know this. That's in Matthew chapter 24. After the ascension, we, we, we certainly believe that when Christ assumed his glory, he availed himself to his omniscience. So I'm not speaking that Jesus doesn't know now that. I'm just saying in his humanity he did. But Jesus redirects their attention and he says, don't be focused on this, be focused on this. You're going to receive power when? When? The Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what he says is, don't spend all your time in a room thinking about when all this is going to go down. Get outside your room when you get the power of the Holy Spirit and go everywhere doing what you know you need to do until Jesus comes back which is a greater, y'all, so much greater priority. What about, when will all this happen? We don't know. That's a great answer, isn't it? When's all this going to happen? I got a great theological answer. I don't know. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do what he's called me to do until he comes. Just a general reminder here about what this means. So the Bible teaches us between the Holy Spirit and the Christian. At conversion, every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All believers. When you're born again, guess what? Spirit of God comes to live in you. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. Scripture says that. How do I know I'm a Christian? Holy Spirit lives in me. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to walk up a mountain or go to a temple or go to God. God comes to us in his Son, and God comes to us in his Spirit. This is different. Notice... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit not comes in you, but the Holy Spirit comes where? Upon you. And what we find ourselves, even though we're indwelt by the Spirit, every believer should be continually empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is that dependence deal. Lord, control me. Lord, empower me. We crack a joke sometimes. We not only need the, the, the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel, we need the power of the Spirit to make it out of Dollar General. You know what I'm talking about? I need his power to be a godly husband. I need his power to be a pastor. I need his power to be a missionary. I need his power to get down 16th Avenue. I mean, that's just, you, you find yourself coming back and back and back. I had a one-time event with the Spirit when he came to live in me that continues throughout all my life. But I find myself continually coming back to the Spirit saying, please empower me, please help me, please strengthen me. Notice in this verse that the word you is mentioned three times. Did you see it? But... You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Check this out. Some of us this morning feel empty. Some of us this morning feel completely overwhelmed. Some of us this morning feel as if we can't do what God's called us to do. Praise God, there's a first you in the text. You, Peter, who mess up everything. You, Simon. You, James, you, John, you, Thomas, who missed out on the first appearance because you didn't want to show up. You, Zealot, 
you, Matthew, you, women, you, believers, who begin to feel their great inadequacy. Some of you this morning feel that way. That's a great place to be. Because it brings you to the second you. I need the power of the Holy Spirit fresh in my life today. I need God to empower me. And what a great prayer it would be, y'all, before we get in our car and drive 500 yards down the road and pop in a funeral home this afternoon and love on a family. Guess what? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. We need the power. And some of you are able to minister today in such a greater way because you are walking through what this family's walking through. You've suffered loss in your family. You get in your car, maybe just you, pray, Holy Spirit, empower me, fill me, help me. Not to, not to, not to just say something, but use me as I walk through a line. Use me as I hug. Use me as I tell somebody, I'm, I'm in it with you. Guess what? Tomorrow you'll find yourself in maybe a different situation, or next week in a different situation, and you'll find yourself the same way these disciples were the second you asking the Holy Spirit to come upon you, to empower you. Man, how awesome is it there's a third you here. That's you will be my witnesses. That we live in the power of the Spirit. That we find ourselves maybe saying, maybe not explaining it the best, maybe at a loss for words, not batting a thousand, not even 250 sometimes with our life. We find ourselves going back and say, Lord Jesus, help me to be your witness. It's what he called us to be, y'all, a witness, to testify, to speak on behalf of what we've seen and heard and experienced. That's what a witness is. What he's done for us on the cross, what he's done in us by saving us. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As we walk through the book of Acts, you know what you'll see? Chapters 1 through 7 are Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11 are Judea and Samaria. Chapters... 11 through present day, ends of the earth. Because in the book of Acts, they never get to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Because the mission's ongoing. That's what we're called to do. Certainty, dependence, don't be distracted. Power. I talked to uh, my buddy, Major Struker, Friday. We were, been trying to get a hold of him. We were working through some stuff and he called me back about 5.30. I was headed to, He'll call a football game on the radio. He called me and, hey, man, sorry, I've been busy all day. What's up? So we were talking, and he kind of hinted. He said, you, you might want to go check out the news today. And I was like, okay. I mean, there's a lot of news. Like, what do you want me to? He said, you know, 28 years since the Battle of Mogadishu. He said, the Army's decided, decided earlier this year to upgrade several awards. I said, oh, wow, really? It's incredible, man. He said, yeah, 18 of the guys that, 17 of the guys that fought with me, they're getting their awards upgraded. I said, really? They're going to give them a bronze star? He said, no, man. He said, they're going to upgrade many of them to a silver star. I said, wow, it's incredible. And he kept just hinting around the bush, but we're, we're tight. And so finally I just said, are you getting upgraded? He paused and he said, yeah. But then he said, but those other guys just deserve it so much more than me. So Friday, my, my buddy was at Fort Benning because of the actions that took place today and tomorrow, 28 years ago. 
He was awarded the silver star. So we talked again yesterday. I told him I was going to talk about him this morning, and you know, it's pretty cool to have firsthand knowledge of that. He said, hey, whatever, if you need me to give any details for, to help the church, I, okay, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Don't have to read in a book and just go straight to the guy that was there. Yeah. But he told me yesterday, this was awesome, y'all. So, so 28 years ago, he's, he's cleaning up a Humvee, facing certain death, going back into a city to be shot at by rifles and RPGs, and he prays as a believer, Lord, not my will but yours be done. What people don't know about that battle is that when that battle was over, because of the peace and calm that Jeff displayed over the comms, and during the battle as he was taking orders and giving orders, when that battle was over, there was between 30 to 35 of, of these operators. Now, this was a JSOC Joint Special um, Operations Command mission. So there were SEALs, there were Rangers, there was Delta, there was pararescue men, like the, the elite of all the branches. That's what did us together. There was about 30 to 35 of these operators that were in a line outside the barracks and they wanted to talk to Jeff because in the midst of when everything hit the fan, they wanted to talk to him after the fact, how were you that way in the battle? And Jeff said, man, they'd come in and I'd talk to them and I'd share Christ. Share them why I had hope. Share with them why I had peace. That's the part of the story that never gets told. So we're talking on the phone yesterday, and he said, dude, we, we had a, you know, this mini reunion because of the, the upgrades of the awards on Friday, and several of our, our, uh, our buddies came back, more rangers came back to celebrate all this. And he said, dude, it blew my mind. I didn't realize this. But 28 years later, very few of them were believers back then. He said, man, guys that I fall with, many of them have become believers now. He said, some of them are pastors. He said, some of them are church planners. He said, even a couple of them are about to get ordained in a few months. He said, it blew my mind that in the midst of a battle, the simple prayer was, not my will but yours be done. And it took 28 years, but 28 years later, you see how God has used life and testimony to bring about his purposes. So this morning, as on a day when we kind of walk through a really tough time, we can be certain that Jesus is alive. Absolutely. And he even says that you're more blessed because you haven't seen him like they did, and yet you believe. Wow. But that certainty brings us to a place where we say, Lord, I know who I am. I need you. My dependence. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to misprioritize. I'm going to focus on what matters. I'm going to allow you to redirect my attention because you have promised me supernatural power to carry out your mission through your church wherever I go. So this morning you may find yourself like the disciples just needing to wait and ask and submit and surrender. Jesus, I need to be what you've called me to be, and so I need what only you can provide through the Spirit to help me. You may find yourself again at his feet. Lord God, Master, I depend on you. Give me what I need. Fill me with your power. Help me through whatever. Some of you this morning may not be certain about Jesus. He's God. He's Lord. 
He came to this earth and he died in your place for your sin and he rose again that you might have life this morning. Cast everything on him. Bank everything on him because he is Lord. He went up. Spirit came down. We're sent out. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You see where we are this morning. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for the power of Scripture. Thank you that we know this morning through many proofs that Christ is who he says he is. Lord, I pray for anyone in this place that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't know him, hasn't trusted in what he's done through his death and resurrection, that even today, right now, as the rain falls, that they would surrender to Jesus and the grace of God would cleanse them and wash them, make them right with you. God, I pray for your people today. Help us, Lord, to be people that are spiritually dependent. When we blow it, Lord, it's a reminder that we need you. When you use us, God, it's a reminder that we need you. When we feel good in life, it's a reminder that we need you. When we're at the bottom of the pit and feel like there's, there's no hope, we need you. Lord, I pray we would live in that. Me first. Thank you for what you offer to us. You call us, yes, but you equip us. I pray you would apply your word to our hearts today. Church, as we sit before the Lord... If you need Christ today, repent, believe the gospel. When we stand and sing, I'll be down here at the front just standing. If you need to talk, if you need to grab me after the service, if you need counseling, I'll be around. Ryan will be around. Daniel and Paul are here. We'd love to to share with you about Jesus and how you can know him. Christian, it may just be you this morning. Humble yourself and be dependent or in humility, look up to your king and Just ask him to give you what only he can. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. You stand and worship, but if you need to sit and pray, you need to kneel and pray, you need to talk, we're here. You just be obedient. So God, work your word in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship.